Well, it'd be helpful if you had both those passages accessible, as I'm going to be referring to them both. Let's pray that God will give us a greater understanding of their relevance for us. Our dear Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would draw to our attention things we need to reflect on from your word today. We pray that we will believe them and act on them through your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I grew up watching the Brady Bunch. I saw Greg get hip. I saw Marsha date Davy Jones of Monkey's fame, pictured behind me. I heard Peter's voice break. I realised that Jan felt she lived in Marsha's shadow. I saw Bobby and Cindy try to break the world teeter-totter, by which we mean seesaw world record. There was Alice's romance with Sam the Butcher. And in pretty well every episode, the parents, Mike and Carol, would bring all to a happy conclusion in 30 minutes, including ad breaks. Interesting stuff. I've watched numbers of programs since then. A few decades ago, I watched a fair bit of The Simpsons. And for more recently, I watched Upper Middle Bogan. And I could regale you with stories from each. But uh, watch, while each show was quite different, and they were each a few decades apart, what each of them had in common was, you probably guessed it, they all depicted families. In each episode, there would be a few laughs, whether corny or satirical or ironic, and at the end, the family pulled together and got on with family life together. Now, families feature heavily in television programs, but also music, movies, all other forms of culture, but really right throughout society. They feature in social discourse, government policy, business planning, etc., etc. And it's not just our society that they feature heavily in. As far as I know, pretty much every society which has ever existed in the history of the world, all cultures combined, have a great focus on the family. And it really comes as no surprise because when it gets down to the end of it, um, we all are part of families, aren't we? We all are members of family units. Now, families, when they function well, can give us a great sense of identity and place. They can provide us with love, with security, with acceptance. They can give us a grounding from which we can launch forth into the world. But sadly, uh, some family contexts aren't like this. They're anything but. Some families are sadly high on dysfunction and they can breed insecurity, fear and a sense of helplessness. Most families probably exist somewhere in between, hopefully closer to the good end uh, than the bad end. Now, families shape, for good or ill, what we are like. So if you grew up as a Liggins back in the 70s and 80s, as I did, you knew about church, you knew about hard work, you knew about, you knew about respect for authority, you knew about cricket, and you knew about dry, ironic senses of humour. Go figure, how did that affect me? If you grew up in another family I'm very familiar with, you would have developed an almost fanatical love for Danny Kaye movies. Danny Kaye was like Jimmy, Jim Carrey in the old days. Ask Shereen about that. Now, it's worth noting that the Bible story, or the Bible account, is in fact a family story. For a start, it describes a God who is in himself a family. Remember, God is a trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in eternal, ongoing, divine, mutual love. It's a family. The Bible describes families, describes Abraham's family, Moses' family, Jesus' family. And the Bible also tells us how if we are Christians, if we're followers of Jesus, if we've asked Jesus to forgive us and we're seeking to follow him, 
we become part of God's family as well. Now, many of you would have heard that Christians are members of God's family many times now, and we cease to listen to it. But if you stop and think for a moment, it is an incredible statement to say that we are members of God's family. It's extraordinary. There are truths to savour here and there are implications to embrace. And we're going to do both of those as we continue our series, uh, The Church is Like, and today we're thinking about how the church is like a family. Really, the church isn't like a family. The church actually is a family. We're going to base today on the Galatians uh, 3 and 4, um, selected verses, and 1 John 3, and an outline which hopefully you received when you came in, uh, or you may have downloaded at home. Um, firstly, I'm going to think about how Christians are children of God, and then secondly, how Christians are brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's start with thinking about how believers are children of God. The Bible says that Christians are children of God. And the theological term which describes how people become children of God is the theological term known as adoption. Now, we all know what normal adoption is. Normal adoption is the process whereby someone is taken into a family and legally becomes part of that family. Theological adoption is where someone who isn't part of God's family becomes part of God's family and is viewed by God as a family member. Many of you may have heard of the very famous uh, theologian, uh, J.I. Packer, who passed away fairly recently. And in his book, Knowing God, I think it was, he says that adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Now, how is it that adoption comes about? Well, Galatians 3.26 says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Great. Well, faith in what or whom? A few verses later, we see that we're adopted through faith in Christ. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5 says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. God saves us through Jesus. But God could have saved us to be anything God could have saved us to be slaves. God could have saved us to be menial servants. God could have saved us to be divine playthings. But he did none of those. He saved us to become his sons and daughters. And he did so at incredible cost. I heard a story during the week, which I believe to be true, took place during the Korean War. A South Korean Christian man was captured by the communists and was, it was ordered that he be shot. But then it was discovered that this South Korean Christian man was in fact um, in charge of an orphanage where he looked after stacks of, of young kids. So a, a communist officer who was there decided not to kill the Christian man who ran the orphanage. He got his 19-year-old son and shot his son instead. Nasty. Now, later, that communist officer was caught by UN forces and he himself was tried and sentenced to death. But then the South Korean Christian man on hearing this 
went and asked that the communist officer be pardoned and furthermore asked whether he could take the communist officer into his own home and treat him as his son. And that's apparently what happened. The communist officer became part of this Christian man's home and the Christian man treated him as his own son. This guy who had shot his biological son. It's an incredible story when you think about it. I don't know whether I could pull it off. But that is what God has done for you and for me. You see, you and I are responsible for the death of God's son. Yet, God adopts us into his family as his sons and daughters. It's an incredible truth to reflect on what being adopted entailed for God the Father and God the Son. So God sent his son to give us the status of being his children, but God sent something else or someone else in verse 6. Look at Galatians 4.6 if you've got it there. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba Father. So God sent his son to give us the status of being sons. God sent his spirit to give us the experience of being his sons or daughters. Uh, the spirit, the passage tells us, enables us to cry out Abba Father. Now Abba is, is a term, uh, it's a term of, of, of great affection which one might um, use for one's father back in the ancient world. Jesus regularly uh, called God the Father, Father. And this passage says that we as Christians can speak of God as Father as well. We can speak of him as our Father, someone who is affectionate, who is personal, who cares about us. As I've often said, God is not a distant divinity, but he's one who's proximate and personal, as personal as a loving parent. Passage then goes on in Galatians 4 to describe us children as his heirs. That's in H E I R S, heirs. Verse 4 of chapter 4. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. An heir is someone who stands to inherit something. So Prince Charles and Prince William stand to inherit the throne of England. I assume that the children of media tycoons such as Murdoch and Packer, they probably stand to uh, be heirs and inherit a lot of money as well. Now, whether the royals or the Packer and the uh, Murdoch children really appreciate what they're heirs to and what they're going to receive, we trust, um, God's children stand to inherit something that will be appreciated and enjoyed. Of course, it's eternity in the best sort of existence imaginable with God and his people. And it probably comes as no surprise that the God who would adopt us even though we're responsible for the death of his son, is the God who is going to give us an unimaginable eternity with him and his people. Now, the implications of all this are very well summarised in our second reading, 1 John chapter 3, where the first verse was as follows. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Now, if you're of my generation, you may recall the Sunday school song, which basically sung this in the King James Version. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that which, I won't sing it, that which should be called children of God. It's, it's, it's sort of in my head. Now, in the Greek, for what it's worth, in the Greek version, uh, the original Greek of this verse, the first word is ideta, uh, which means see, notice, understand. 
And so at the very start of this chapter, it says, look, take note, listen to what I'm about to say here. What does he say? He gets us to consider the fact that God has lavished his love on us to make us children. Sons, not slaves. Daughters, not dogs. Children, not chattels. We are loved lavishly. It's not a metaphor. The passage says that is what we are. Now, I wonder whether you have ever uh, been on the receiving end of something that was more than was strictly necessary, someone who went over and beyond the call of duty for you. Perhaps not the most significant event in my life, but one which I think on very fondly occurred a number of years ago when I was a lawyer. I was a lawyer in my 20s and uh, I got on very well with uh, the partners uh, in my firm where I worked. And one in particular I got on very well with. And um, he went well beyond trying to make me a happy employee. We got on very well. And he, while he was a very busy man, we used to go out for lunch together once a week in the city and just chat about, chat about things. Uh, he invited me over to his place for meals fairly regularly and I became friends with his wife, his kids and his parents. One morning we went down to the cricket nets and played cricket together. Another time we went out to the SCG and watched the cricket. And then on one evening in 1995, he invited me around for dinner, as he had on a number of occasions, and I turned up. He lived on the, absolutely the distant side of Sydney to where I lived. He was, I was from the deep north, he was from the deep south. Turned up, parked the car, thought I saw someone out of the corner of my eye who looked vaguely familiar, but I thought, look, here I am in Connell's Point, obviously I'm imagining things, thought no further. Turned up at his house, went inside, and I saw there were some balloons up and a happy birthday sign, and I quickly thought, which of his children have just had their birthday? Then I noticed there was a friend of mine in, a, in, in the room, which I could see, and I thought, I didn't know my boss knew Jenny. What's, what's she doing there? Oh, and there's my other brother, Geoffrey, there as well. And then the penny's starting to drop because I was a bit thick, wasn't I? Um, he and uh, another guy from work, who's a friend of mine, had organised my surprise 30th birthday party. They'd tracked down 40 of my best friends uh, and we had a wonderful evening. His wife, who was a great cook, cooked up an absolute storm. I felt that I was on the receiving end of a massive amount of love was lovely. Now that's a massive amount of love. He went beyond the call of duty as an employee, but God's love in adopting us is unsurpassingly lavish. Now, sometimes people, perhaps you, might find this a little hard to accept or take on board. Could I suggest there may be a couple of reasons for this? You might find that the amount of love which we're apparently receiving here is just too much. It's excessive. You see, our experience of receiving love from others, for some people, may be a bit more, we receive, you know, a more miserly version of love. It's more restrained. It's more limited. That's what we're used to. But Jesus and God and the Spirit are quite different here. They lavish their love on us. The Bible says he does it, so we've got to believe it. A second reason might be that we find the nature of the love we receive here a bit difficult to accept. Because we think, look, we haven't really deserved anything. We've in fact deserved really the opposite of love from God. You know, we're used to getting things which we deserved. Often the love we receive is conditional. You know, people love us if we do something well or we love others if they're practical enough or bright enough or, or, or smart enough or friendly, whatever it is, it's very conditional. The love here is not conditional at all. It's undeserved but it's lavish anyway. The Bible says it, we need to believe it. Now, this is a, a, a really a life-changing truth as we really reflect on it. And can I ask you a question which I'd like you to answer in your own mind? I don't want you to answer out loud or give me a show of hands or anything like that. But I sometimes wonder, um, you know, what, what do you actually think 
about yourself. How do you view yourself? When you're at home, perhaps in a, a moment of solitude, and you reflect on who you are, what sort of things come into your mind? Perhaps when you're reflecting at home, you think, I'm a loved and valued member of the community making an important contribution to the world. Some people might in those situations think, I'm isolated, I'm pretty useless and worthless, my existence on this planet makes little difference to anyone. Or perhaps you're some sort of combination. I have had at times in my life where things haven't gone the way I would have liked and as I've reflected on it, I've felt pretty unimportant on the planet. But if you ever find yourself down that end of the spectrum, it is worth reflecting on the truth that the creator and the sustainer of the universe thinks that you are sufficiently important to be adopted into his family and that the creator and sustainer of the universe lavishes his love upon you. Maybe no one else is at the moment but he is. I think that is an incredibly wonderful thing to reflect on when we're going well, but also when perhaps we have those moments where that is, we're not going as well, where you feel useless, like a waste of space or whatever it is, because God doesn't view you that way. The truth here is a truth to savour, to reflect on and to enjoy. And if you take nothing else home, from you, uh, home with you from church today, just Remind yourself to reflect on the fact that what love God has lavished on you, that you could be made his child as a Christian. Now, having said that, the main thing I want us to do is to just, I guess, savour that truth. Probably not a new one for many of you, but still one which we want to reflect on. I'm going to very briefly make a few comments about the fact that various obligations and responsibilities and privileges come our way as children of God, and that is the fact that we have brothers and sisters in Christ a number of whom are sitting in this room this morning. See, this too impacts how we think and what we do. And one of the things that the Galatians passage tells us is that we are all equal, all one in Christ. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Now that would have been an absolutely astounding statement to make back in the first century because that was cutting at the deepest divisions in first century culture. See, I've heard it said that if you're a Jewish man uh, in the first century, you might pray a prayer along the following lines. You might pray, dear God, thank you that I was not born a Gentile, that I was not born a slave and that I was not born a woman. Okay? Imagine that Jewish man gets converted and becomes a Christian. He then learns that he's all one, he's one with the Gentiles and he's equal with the slaves and he's of same value as the women. And if you were a Gentile Christian or a slave Christian or a, a female Christian, you are equal as important as that Jewish converted man Christian as well. The divisions had gone in terms of importance and significance, all were one in Christ Jesus. This tells us that God's family is not an exclusive club. If you want to join a Fernwood gym, you know what you have to be? You have to be a woman. You want to get into a pub, you've got to be over 18. You know, groups uh, can be exclusive. Uh, social groups can be exclusive. If you remember back to school, some groups at school were pretty exclusive. 
sometimes nastily so. Workplaces can be exclusive, uh, yet Jesus and God and the Spirit, God's family, is not exclusive. God accepts the good, so-called good and so-called bad, the practical and the impractical, the bright, the less bright, whatever that means, popular and unpopular, etc. I guess that, that highlights for us again, and I think I made this point a few weeks back, is that if we're all one in Christ Jesus, we need to accept all Christians. And I guess the, the thing to reflect on, are there Christians we are less accepting of than others? Uh, perhaps there are a few Christians we find a little uninteresting or, or annoying or not like us or different or they've slighted us or you know, whatever it may be. Um, we need to accept other believers as believers, as children of God. Now, um, in the light of this, and I'm going on down to 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, it should come as no surprise that that verse says, For this is the message you heard from the beginning, we should love one another. So once again, you've heard this many times, we need to love others everywhere in the world, but particularly those who are part of God's family. This can be challenging for some of us sometimes, because there may be, firstly, prejudices we need to overcome. But God gives his spirit in our heart, who will help us to progressively overcome those. It can be hard to love others if we feel that no one loves us, but we've been reminded this morning how much God loves us. It can be hard to love others if we fear that our love will be rejected, but it's very comforting and secure to know that we are loved because of God's grace, not because of our merit, and we will never lose it. That can be a base from which we can go to love others. How should we love others? sacrificially like Jesus it says in 1 John 3:16 this is how we know what love is Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters so living in the christian family is not just sitting back and enjoying the ride although i do enjoy being part of it and it is a very pleasant ride a lot of the time uh, it will often involve god empowered effort so sometimes uh, many of you are engaged in various ministries around the church you may not feel like doing it one week, but you need to pray that God will help you give you the strength. Sometimes it might take, others tr take effort to relate to others at church. You turn up and you feel exhausted or you feel a bit put out with someone for some reason. Once again, we need to pray to God and put in the effort to relate to our brothers and sisters well. We need to love sacrificially like Jesus and this impacts actions. And this is what verses 17 and 18 highlight. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, although I'll add this bit in, it's very nice to love others with words and speech, but we also need to love in actions and in truth. Let me conclude. I recall a story uh, told by the English actress and comedian Dawn French, you know, she was the vicar of Dibley. Many of you may know her from that and from other programs as well. And as I remember her, her story, it went along the following lines. She was a teenager. It was probably a Friday night. She was heading out to some party. Probably wasn't in the greatest mood, I'm not sure. But just before she went out the front door, her father said to her, you know, Dawn, just want you to know, I love you. And then Dawn said that she walked out the door an entirely different person after hearing that. You know, she, was in, she felt like something rather than just hearing her dad say that she loved her. I think she went out, her self-esteem bolstered her feelings sky high. We can walk out the door of this building in a few minutes' time knowing what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And as I said, 
Just let's just savour that this week. Just reflect on that. And being part of God's family, uh, God has obviously stuff for us to do, which includes loving our brothers and sisters, but it's the savouring which helps us with the serving, I think, here. So my big idea this morning as we reflect on the church being a family is let's savour that and serve each other. Savour and serve. Let me pray. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we once again thank you for your message and sometimes the message of Scripture is really pretty simple as this morning's is, uh, but often the simple things are the most profound and life-changing. Lord, we thank you and are so appreciative of the amount of love you've lavished on us that as your children, we are children of God. Thank you for this truth. We pray that it would transform the way we see things and how we live. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.